Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. I uh, took a few days this past week to go hit a little white ball around a few golf courses in South Carolina uh, and uh, really enjoyed my time with a group of friends. And, uh, and that's really kind of where I want to start is what forms your group of friends? What are the values that determines who you're around? Now, in this case, this past week, we all had a common love for hitting a golf ball uh, around a few nice courses, but that's not always been the highest value for me. I didn't even pick up golf until I was out of college. But if I was to really be honest as to what formed my inner circle, my friend group, it would follow this list I'm about to give you that as a list of qualifications to be in Tony Hunt's circle. You must affirm what I do. You must enjoy doing what I do. You must be also good at doing what I do and make me enjoy doing what I do even more joyful. And for those that are already in my inner circle, they must approve that you can also do these things as well as we do. So now, having said that, do you think you would have been in my friend circle when I was in high school or college? Depends. Just depends if you like the things I do and we're good at the things I do. And my guess is some of you know enough about me to know it's like, yeah, we're two different birds. But what becomes alarming about such a list is when you make this a list and spiritualize it. It may not be the most mature list and qualifications. In fact, I would say I needed to grow up in the way I, you know, presupposed the people that were around me and the way I, you know, approached them. I judged them by the things they did or didn't do, uh, their personalities and so on. But in the end of the day, God had to grow me up, and he did on some areas. I'm still working on a few. But honestly, we tend to do these things and spiritualize them. What would it look like if a church chose such a list as their qualifications for who belongs? So here we go. At LESC, you can join us and become a member at LESC if you affirm what we do. That's a good thing, right? But you also need to enjoy what we do, be good at what we're doing, can't come in and be unskilled. You've got to enjoy, make us enjoy what we're doing even more when you enter in. And you must find approval by everybody else that's already here. Now, you can make a case for some of these in some manner or form, but in the end of the day, who dictates and chooses who's in the family of God? Who has the right to decide that you belong in the family of God versus we choosing who's in the family of God? I would say that if we use these list of qualifications that would more often than not reflect one particular human being's perspective, and since I sit in the senior pastor's saddle, it likely would end up being a bunch of people that like Tony, do what Tony does, and are good at what Tony does. And that's not a healthy church. 
In fact, if these become our qualifications as a church, then we would become blind to that which is blatantly from God. Let me say that again. If we were to make such human standards, the conditions by which who can become part of the church, we would become blatantly blind to that which is truly from God. Today, we're going to look at a text that is looking at where religious leaders in the time of Jesus decided to become the exclusive gatekeepers to those who belong or don't belong in the kingdom of God. Those who are allowed to worship and those who are not allowed to worship in the temple of God. And let me just say this. Jesus takes offense to it. So let's begin by getting some context. In the beginning of John chapter 9, I'm going to summarize the first 23 verses. And here's what happens. Jesus is on his way. And he's in in Jerusalem. and And it's a time of Sabbath. So there is rest going on. He comes by this beggar who is, worship, who is begging for money near the temple. This beggar happens to be young and blind. He had been blind since birth. Jesus immediately finds compassion upon this young man and, and he heals him on this Sabbath day. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, were threatened by this because they had already been tracking every step of Jesus. Jesus has been growing in popularity. His influence is starting to be stronger than theirs. They were threatened by him. Rather than considering perhaps he is the one they've been studying about that was to come all their years. But instead they made a decision. He's not the one. Or we don't want him to be the one. They, did, they stopped asking and testing. Does he measure up to the things we've studied in scripture? But instead, they just wanted to hold on to their influence. And they became blind. Blind to that which was clearly from God. So they're looking for ways to discredit Jesus in this moment. So they see that he's healed this young blind man who had been blind since birth, and he, but he did this healing on a, on a Sabbath, which would be their Saturday. So they decided to take offense to that, saying that you shouldn't be doing work on a Sabbath day. You should be resting, which is an interesting conflict because it's to suppose that he was doing work, which then means it's his job to heal. But they ignored all of those other possibilities and just simply said it was a violation of the Sabbath. They had already made a presupposition of guilt. So their investigation into this matter was already guilty of doing something wrong. And it's just a matter of finding what they can find to prove that to be true. So that's their desired narrative. So they interview this young man They question him. They try to understand how it is that he possibly can now see. I mean, imagine. They had passed this young man multiple times. They had seen him begging. They knew that he had been born blind. But now, but now he can see. 
So they asked all their questions and they became frustrated by the answers. And, and so they set him aside and they bring in his parents. They ask them questions. And the parents go to affirm that indeed this was their son because maybe the narrative they could choose is it's not the actual blind beggar that we've known to be at our doors for all these years. So instead, the parents said, no, this is indeed our son. Who was blind since birth? But when they began to question how he became a person that could see, they began to say, you know, you really should talk to him. And they had already done that, but were frustrated by it. So where we're going to begin reading together is in verse 24, when the parents have left and they bring the young man back into the room. So here we go in John chapter 9, verse 24. A second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man, referring to Jesus, we know this man is a sinner. Verse 25, the young man replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know is I was born blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Young man answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples now too? Come on, first service got the humor in that. There was an opportunity here that this man, young man is giving a testimony and he knew there were adversaries in the room. And so he suggests, tongue in cheek, do you want to become a follower of Jesus as well? Verse 28, then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The young man answered, now that it is, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And I'm going to stop there. These Pharisees were religious leaders of their day. They had spent their entire lives being prepared for being that religious leader. From a young boy's age, they are taught the truths of Moses. And then throughout their time of study, they begin to learn the prophetic side of things. Learning of all this, this different prophetic messages about the coming Messiah. They knew those things well because they longed for the Messiah to come. Here he is. The Messiah is standing right in front of them and they cannot see him. How is that so? That they, as the religious leaders, the ones who had studied the most, all the messianic prophecies, nearly 400 of them, and they couldn't see him with him standing right there in front of them. 
Well, I believe it's because they had become blind. Jesus accuses them as such after he hears that they had thrown out this young man. They had become blind leaders. And there's some qualities that you see in this text that kind of highlight what a blind leader looks like and how they become such a person. So blind spiritual leaders develop, and this is my first point here, is that blind spiritual leaders develop incorrect theology because they go unchecked. You see, as you're studying theology, it's very easy to create a narrative an assumption, and you run with it, and you could even make it true, in your eyes anyway, until somebody else confronts it and checks it and, and takes the text and, and, and brings a defense to it. You see, what had happened for generations is that theology of the religious leaders had gone unchecked for some time. And as a result... Many theological positions that they practiced on a daily basis became as true to them as the words of Moses himself. Such as the idea that somebody who has, was born with an abnormality clearly was a person that had more sin than another. Or was going to sin more than another. Or was the result of apparent sin more than another. So a person born blind would be judged as a deep sinner, a significant sinner, and he's being judged by God, hence the reason he was born blind. This incorrect theology had grown over centuries and was unchecked because they were not willing to have and receive accountability. The truth is, everybody sins. And we're all sinners. And to create a degree is not our job. That is God's job. It is true that sickness and physical birth abnormalities are due to the fallen nature of humanity, but not necessarily due to the result of one being more sinful than another. So we must be careful. Scripture is very evident and clear that, that the human body suffers because of sin. So to suggest that one is more sinful than another based on the sickness or health of their body would be not the strongest of theology. Another thing that you see in the blind spiritual leader that is on display in this, ta in this case is that they defy the very evidence of God's presence around them. Here you have a miracle that has taken place in front of them near them and around them, and the evidence of it is right there. God's clear work is right before their eyes, and yet they dismiss it. They defy it. You see, when you become blind due to incorrect theology, or you become prideful that you are the one that decides what is good and bad, then when God does something that is plainly from him before your eyes, if you're a blind spiritual leader, you'll miss it. And these leaders missed it. God himself, manifested in his son, Jesus Christ, was right there before his eyes and had shown his divine power by healing a young man born blind. 
Another thing that you can test and see that their spirit wasn't quite that of God and they weren't healthy spiritual leaders was the fact that the result or fruit of their spirit was condemnation and anger. I mean, they were the ones that said that you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And then they chose to be the gate. They kicked them out and said, you do not belong as one of us. Blind spiritual leaders harm people. Jesus saw this. Verse 35, you, you see that he sees this and he takes offense to it. Because a young man that he had healed, that he invested his divine power into and, and, and brought this man into seeing for the first time in his life, that he took delight in doing that for this young man, that now his, the ones that were assigned to be the spiritual leaders of that generation called it something other than divine. They dismissed it. They assumed it to be of the devil. And as a result, they are harming people and they call this young man out by an incorrect theology that says, well, you were born blind because you were steeped in sin, so therefore you don't belong here. If you want to know how restraint, how much restraint Jesus can show when he is thoroughly ticked off, this is that moment. You're about to see and read in the text that Jesus calls out their sin, but he restrains from incredible wrath that he could have done in that moment. You see, Jesus had the ability because he was the son of God. He had the ability that he could have done what happened in Moses' time and caused snakes to show up and take out the religious leaders. He could have called out boils, uh, physical uh, issues upon them where they could have been sick and then suffered great wrath of God. But no, Jesus did none of those things. What he did do was create a moment for teaching. You see, what had happened in this moment is these blind spiritual leaders had chosen to become the exclusive gate to decide who belongs in the family of God and who does not. Who belongs and who does not. That was not their role, and Jesus is going to take that on. So I want us to begin by reading in verse 1 to see what Jesus does in response to this. So again, he has heard, he has seen now that they kicked out this young man that he had healed. So he addresses specifically the Pharisees. Verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees. So he's speaking to them. I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and robber. The one who enters the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listens to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. 
Let me stop there before I continue reading. So you have this group that he's going to direct a very specific message to. But for us to understand it, I need to unpack, uh, unpack three pieces of this to help you understand how they would have under, interpreted the various pictures that are in this analogy of Jesus. First, let's talk about sheep. Sheep, which they would have understood in a more agrarian uh, society uh, where sheep were more common. We, we have an agrarian society around here, but very few sheep. It's not something we're familiar with. So what you need to know about sheep is that of all mammals that you typically see in farmland, sheep require leadership. Sheep are about as dumb as they come. They need somebody to tell them where to go. They, they tend to wander and cannot find their way back. They need a leader. But they will only follow the voice that they know. They, extremely are, they become extremely skittish of anything unknown to them. In particular, a person's voice calling out to them. They also lack awareness. They rely upon a shepherd a leader being aware for them. So they require leadership. They will follow the voice of the one that they've grown to know. They will get skittish about the unknown and they really rely upon the shepherd being aware for them. And as a result, they will trust even to a fault that which they know, even if it's a false shepherd. You also need to know that they have little to no defense. There's not much they can do if an adversary comes upon the flock. The safety they rely upon is the flock itself, the sheer numbers of it all, and the shepherd himself. So, there are the sheep. And keep in mind that Jesus is talking to the shepherds of Israel. These are the ones that were supposed to be leading the sheep. They were the ones whose voices should be the trusted ones. They are the ones that, that the sheep should be able to trust in the motivations uh, behind the voices that are being spoken. And so as a result, the sheep of Israel will trust them sometimes even to a fault. These sheep had little to no defense. And as a result, these false shepherds of the people is that he is to care for them and to lead them out into the pastures where they can find food and yes delight in life the gatekeepers who might be guarding the gate next to on behalf of the shepherd know who the shepherd is and they will let him come in then all the shepherd has to do is merely call out by his voice and the sheep will know his voice and come out you see, they would create these sheep pens in the middle of massive pastures. And so many different herds and flocks of sheep would come into these pens at night with multiple different shepherds. The next morning, once they've made it through the night safe and secure, they are then able to then at this moment be waiting for their shepherd to speak so that they can come out. And so the shepherd would come to the gate, call out his sheep, the sheep, knowing his voice, would come out. The flocks who belonged to other shepherds would remain. So he would call them from, without, from within the masses because they knew them and he knew them. The sheep pen is also a haven. 
So that's the third place I want to describe. It's a safe haven. But it can also be a place of slaughter. What do I mean by that? So there's a picture here of what the sheep pens look like. You saw that on the video that we began with. Imagine if the wrong person gets into the pen. Let's say that a gatekeeper that was paid off by an adversary who did not like the shepherds of those flocks. He paid off that adversary to leave his post and to allow, let's say, a wolf into the pen. The sheep would be at their most vulnerable point because there's no place of escape. They would be harmed a great deal and many would die if not all. But guarded by the right person, that sheep pen helps them survive each night as they go into the slumberous portions of the day. So the sheep pen is meant to be that of beauty as long as the gate is guarded by the right person. It's also the place of going in for security but leaving each day to find joy in the journey. It creates a flow on their daily rhythms. At night, they need the security of it. In day, they follow the shepherd out to enjoy living. All of this is dependent upon the motives of a good shepherd. Let's continue on. So now that we understand all the the meanings that the listening audience, in this case, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are the audience, they would understand what Jesus is saying when bringing up these things. But they're not getting his point. Here's the point, verse 7. Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate. I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. I am the gate. And and if you enter through me, you will be saved. And it's whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill steal and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the gate, Jesus says. Remember the context. A young man has been healed of something that he was born with, a true miracle. The religious leaders who are threatened by the one who did the healing Instead of looking at the evidence and letting it cause them to be on a journey of following and pursuing after him and and testing to see if indeed this is the Messiah, they made the decision, we don't like him, we're not going to accept him as the Messiah, so therefore it's about figuring out a manner by which we can condemn him. But Jesus declares himself as the exclusive point of entry into the flock of God which is in direct contrast to what the Pharisees had just done. The Pharisees had claimed themselves as the gatekeepers as to who belonged in the family of God. 
Because those, that young man was, hired, was healed on a, on a Sabbath day, and because this young man was healed in particular by Jesus, they immediately discounted it. They defied it as an act of God, and they chose to exclude this young man from the family of God. God took offense, and Jesus makes that declaration by saying, I am the gate. No one can find life except through me. So he says it twice for emphasis in verse 7 and verse 9. So he separates himself from the religious leaders who chose to be the gate when they had no business doing so. Because they were not using the teachings of God to determine who belonged. They merely chose those who affirmed what they did, liked what they did, did what they did, and then they would gather a circle around them that would affirm and choose by what they do. Sound familiar to my story? It is not our role to determine who belongs in the kingdom of God. It is not our role to determine who is worthy for the grace of God. Jesus declares himself as the exclusive means by which somebody can come into the family of God. Anyone else attempting to make this decision, Jesus refers to in verse 8 as a thief and robber who try to create other means by, and other ways by which they can enter the pen. And Jesus says, they're only seeking to destroy your soul. This grieves me to say this, but it's become all too common in American culture and in the American church that bears the name of Jesus Christ to say that Jesus is a way to God. Did you hear what I said? It's become a too common story that Jesus is a way. As some pastors might say, well, that's what I've chosen for me. And I believe that God will be a good judge to determine if somebody chooses another way that he might let them in. They rationalize other possibilities because nobody wants to say that there's an exclusive way by we can find reconciliation with God because it's offensive. So to avoid offense, we've softened our message and said that Jesus is a way that I have chosen. It would be a good way for you to choose. Verse 9, Jesus makes it very, very clear after he states a second time, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be the ones who are saved. No other means. He is the one that is sufficient for the covering of sins. As we've already taught over the last few weeks, he is going to be the Lamb of God. That sacrifice is yet to come in this narrative, but he is going to be the Lamb of God. And we sit here today knowing that he is indeed the Lamb of God, the all-sufficient sacrifice to cover the sins that we have had past, present, and future to extend that grace to us, not because we've deserved it, but because he loved us. 
It was God who said, I so loved the world that I gave my one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And as he says in verse 10, he says, the thief will come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give you life and life to the full. So not only is he that gate, that exclusive manner by which somebody can enter into the kingdom of God and the family of God, and he being the one that says, I determine who is in the house of God and who is not. Jesus also says, but I'm also the one that is the good shepherd that gives you life and life to the full. Next week, we'll continue on in this text and we'll look at the good shepherd who provides that life and leads for us. But I want to speak very specifically to what Jesus has said so far to these Pharisees who put themselves in a position of being the gate to decide who deserves to be in the church, who deserves to be thrown out of the church. The caution is this. That is left up to God. That is a God decision. He is the gate. Jesus has established that. He decides who is safe to enter because he'll make them safe. He will be the one that will lead us out into the pasture each day when there is so much going on that could harm us. But if we follow him, we'll find safety in his leadership. But it's the gate that we must enter. Jesus isn't a way. Jesus is the way. He is the only way. And to teach anything different would be denying the authority of Jesus' teaching. So don't be a part of the harm that has been done in our country by those who would claim to be followers of Christ. Where you would say, well, I have chosen Christ. Your religion or your path is good for you. If that's been your message or the, maybe the template by how you live, what you have done is you have allowed the sheep around you to be susceptible to thieves and robbers who seek to destroy their soul because they're teaching a different way. Nobody wants to claim because it's offensive. Nobody wants to claim that people we've loved that have passed before us who had never bent the knee to Jesus. Nobody wants to say that they're not with Jesus in heaven. Nobody wants to say, yeah, my uncle is in hell. My grandfather's in hell. My father's in hell. My wife is in hell. My husband is in hell. My child is in hell. Nobody wants to say that. And I don't think that's necessarily appropriate either to make the judgment. But at the cost of avoiding the offense, we avoid telling the blatant truth. If somebody doesn't know Jesus, they will experience eternity separated from God in a place we know as hell. And I think that we fail to realize the significance and seriousness of that reality. And I believe it's rooted in this teaching right here. God knew 
We could not make it on our own. No man is good enough. That's why he sent his son, Jesus. But that also means that Jesus is the only means by which we can find reconciliation with God. And that's a message that is so necessary today when there is a lot of lost sheep that are being harassed, that are being hurt and hindered, that are in need of the good shepherd, that are in need of being led to the gate. And then let Jesus take it from there. Jesus desires to change lives based on a profile of love, not the profile of your character. He wants to redeem your character. He wants to change it. He wants to undo your storyline that had been written maybe for generations prior to you and turn it into his storyline in your life. Jesus is the gate. I am not. Jesus is the gate and you are not. But we are sheep and we need his leadership. Let's pray. Jesus, I know that the moment that you called me out by name, I was not walking with you, for you. I wasn't pleasing you. I didn't deserve any grace you extended me, nor did anybody here, but you loved us. And you know us. You desire to save us. You don't desire to destroy us. You're, trying, you're, you're, you're coming to save us from destruction. God, appeal, I appeal to your, your will right now on behalf of those who walked in this room or are watching on live stream or are watching it later or hearing it on the radio. I appeal, Lord, that you'll work in their heart and call them to yourself. Lead them to the gate. That is your son, Jesus that they can discover the life that Jesus describes here as being life to the full. And for those of us who have been led to that gate and we've entered that gate, we've experienced the joy of having a great shepherd leader in Jesus. Don't let us be satisfied with just being one of the sheep. There are people we know that need Jesus. And we also know people that would like to destroy our friends' souls. So Lord, use us to be advocates and blessings to those who are in need of the shepherd, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for being the shepherd that knows us, knows us by name, loves us, and cares for us. May that be cemented in our hearts and we find joy in that this day. I pray this in your name. Amen. Would you please stand as we close with this song?
So later on in the book of John, Thomas was concerned because Jesus was starting to use language that he didn't like, which was, I'm leaving you all, but you're going to carry on the ministry. And Thomas didn't like the idea of being left behind as he saw it. And so he says, Lord, don't you don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Then Jesus answered by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can get to the Father except through me. So if you really know me, then you will know my Father as well. So from now on, you have known him, and you have seen him. So it's about reconciliation with God. And Jesus comforts Thomas by saying, I am the way. I am the truth and the life, and I'm the one that you, when you come to me, you will then know the Father as well. So we're armed with the opportunity of knowing the exclusive path by which one can be reconciliated with the Father God. So we stand here today, having heard and received from Jesus' own words that he's the exclusive path. It's a matter of allowing him to be the Lord of your life, receiving him 
and trusting in him as the lead shepherd. So we're all, for those of us who know Jesus, we're called to just keep following, as Jesus said, because he's the way. And he will lead us to life full. But if you've never given your life to Jesus, there's no other way to find reconciliation with God except through him. You've been given a gift today to hear that and to know that. So in the name of Jesus, the exclusive way to God and as the gate, but the exclusive great shepherd who is compassionate and knows you, loves you, and would give his life for you and did so. He's worthy of your life. We receive that in his name. Amen. You are dismissed.